Second Peter chapter one, verses 12 through to 15. This is gonna be our text for today. And it says this, therefore I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now know. So this therefore, verse 12, is connected back to what we talked about last week, so I'd encourage you to catch up if you haven't listened to that message. I think it's right as long as I'm in this bodily tent. This bodily tent, every shout tent. Every shout tent. Every turn to your neighbor and say we're talking about tents. Peter says, while I'm in this bodily tent, so he's gonna create an illustration for us. And Peter's gonna tell us, he's gonna help us understand that he's likening our mortal bodies, this physical thing, and the life that flows out of it as a tent. To wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I'll soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. So he's telling us right now that, how many of you would agree with me, that our tent has an expiration date. And this is a really important truth for us to understand, and so I'll make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. Today, as we continue on in our series, you are here. I wanna to speak to you from the subject, it's just a tent. Come on, we shout that out. Say, it's just a, a tent. It's just a tent as we deal with making the most of the life that God has given to us. Will you pray with me just one more time? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and it changes us. And so God, one more time today, I pray that you would speak clearly through me. No one needs Jason's words. We need your word. It's your word that brings life. It's your word that brings hope. It's your word that changes us and transforms us. It's your word that does it all. We are changed by your word. And so we love you and we honor you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on and everybody shouted. Yeah. Show of hands, how many of you love to camp? Where are my campers at? All right. Literally every service. I'm surprised we have church on Sunday with how many of you like the outdoors. And so um, I went camping a lot as a kid with my family. Uh, my parents were divorced and we moved to the Northwest. My dad's last station was there. My mom moved there as well, brought us there so we could be closer. And then my dad would eventually move to, to Utah where he was originally from. Um, the time that he would spend in his last few years uh, with the Navy there, we'd go there on the weekends and during like spring breaks and vacations and things like that. And during that time, he would take us camping. We loved the outdoors and it was a bunch of Navy guys and, and their kids. And so it was always wild and out crazy and we'd have the best of times. But I'll never forget one of the first times that we went camping. Uh, my dad took us out into this area. I mean, woods everywhere, beautiful, pristine lake and, and mountains. And we had all the fishing gear and all the outdoor stuff. Like it was gonna be, it was gonna be absolutely awesome. And I remember setting up a tent much like this for the very, very first time. And parents, I don't know if you kind of can get there with me really fast, but uh, isn't it really frustrating that our kids get focused on the things that don't actually matter the most? I.e., you buy them a gift, they don't care about the gift, they care about the box. Y'all with me? Well, on this particular afternoon, we set up the tent, and instead of exploring the woods, which my dad wanted me to do, and instead of getting out there into the wilderness, this little guy right here, what did he do? He stayed in his tent, and I put my sleeping bag down, and I had my pillow, and I had, I had my, my pocket knife. Shout out, Swiss Army. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and I had my flashlight in here, and I had my lamp, and I had all the things to make my tent awesome to cozy up my tent, make it so that I would spend the most time possible in my tent. 
to make sure that while I was in this tent, which in my mind I was planning to do quite frequently on this camping trip, is that my tent was the most comfortable thing it could be. Except my dad had a different plan for me. And I'll never forget my dad's words as he shouted from outside the tent. He said, Jason, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? I'm in my tent. He goes, son, we didn't come here for your tent. Look at all this wood. Look at everything that's out here. And then he said these words, Jason, it's just a tent. I don't know how many of you would agree with me, but it's fascinating how easy it is for us to get hyper-focused on the things that matter the least in life. But it's human nature, isn't it? As the sayings go, we make mountains out of molehills and we blow things out of proportion. Solomon, in his quest for wisdom and meaning, would speak to this issue in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through to 14. Listen to what he writes. He says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile. And then he says this, a pursuit of the wind. Why? Well, Solomon's discovering what Peter had discovered is that it's just a, oh, we're going to get there, all of us at one point or another. It's just a tent. See, the problem of personal concern and, and the preoccupation with now is it's not a new issue. I want to make sure that I'm careful that I don't spend an exorbitant amount of time beating up on our modern culture in this moment. We're afforded some great things. So I want us to know that this issue of being preoccupied with our tent is not a new modern issue. It's not a Western issue. It's not an American issue. It's a humanity issue. One that has its nuances across the diversity of people and places, but all the same, it's a human issue. In his magnum opus concerning the art of joy, Paul the Apostle would tell the Philippians that he too, as a human being, would struggle with his concern for his tent, but he had found the secret of dealing with it. He calls it contentment. So good. <laughs> Philippians chapter three, verses seven to 11 says this. This is Paul writing. He says, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. And more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. That, that word there actually is a stronger word than dung and uh, would have the same connotation as me using a four-letter word that I will not use in church today <laughs> so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith, and this is his goal. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from yeah. among the dead. How could, how could Paul count his, his loss, his education, his stature, his being, the stuff that he's done? How, did, how does he count it all less? Because he figured something out. It's just a... Now, this discovery that he would share with the Philippians is the same one that he would share earlier with the people of Corinth as he would write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through to 9. I hope you like your Bible because we have a lot of it today. 
So he says this, for we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, come on somebody, we have a building from God. An eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, this, this physical tent that we're in. Have you, you been there? I groan, I, lo- I long for that day. Things are in decay and we're aware of that decay. So my, my bodily tent groans for a heavenly place. Desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So he's talking about these clothes right here. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed. So that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the spirit as a down payment. Can I just tell you for a second, theologically, what Paul is helping us understand here is that when you and I give our life to Jesus and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it is our down payment helping us understand and know that eternity is still ahead of us, that there's nothing here that means anything greater than what is ahead of us. So the Holy Spirit working in me, our experience in the presence of the Holy Spirit tells us that there's more beyond us. That's what he's saying. It's the down payment. And so because of it, we're always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. My goodness, I love the Bible. (laughs) So in other words, this side of heaven, the here and now, come on somebody, it's just... The great unknown New Testament author of Hebrews adds further commentary to this issue as he speaks about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verses eight to 10, and the nomadic reality of his life. This is what they write. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who architect and builder is God. They lived in a tent, both physically and physically, but looking for a heavenly home with foundations whose builder was God. We'll talk more about Abraham in a few minutes, but what I want us to recognize again is that Abraham's ability to wander towards God was only possible with the realization that it's just Now there's a tension in all of this that exists, a dissonance that we feel in life, in our tent, and that dissonance is unhappiness. You heard of it? You experienced it before? So we need to ask a really important question, existential question. We all just sit back for a minute. Here's the question right here. What makes us unhappy? What makes you and I unhappy? In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, author John Mark Comer quotes author Ronald Rollheiser as he writes this. So much of our unhappiness comes from comparing our lives, our friendships, our loves, our commitments, our duties, our bodies, and our sexuality to some idealized and non-Christian vision of things which falsely assures us that there's a heaven on earth. When that happens, and it does, our tensions begin to drive us mad, in this case to what he calls a cancerous restlessness. 
I mean, these are visceral words. These are, these are strong words to cut right to the truth of what you and I deal with, that much of our unhappiness isn't because things are bad or good. It's just because we're comparing it to things that we think will bring heaven on earth, failing to realize that it's just a tent. It's just a tent. It burns up in the end. It doesn't matter. He then goes on to write this. True restfulness, though is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living an ordinary life with a sense of ease and gratitude and appreciation, peace and prayer. He says this, we are restful when ordinary life is enough. But how is ordinary life enough? How is that, how is that possible? Well, when we realize it's just a tent. So, We've taken a little bit of journey through scripture, bunch of moments talking about tent life. Let's go to one more person, because I think it's important that we look at what Jesus says about this issue. How about you? Yep. Let's see what Jesus says about this. Matthew chapter six, verses 25 through to 33. Jesus is gonna give us a lengthy discourse on how we are to interact with our tent. What does tent life look like? How do we deal with it? How do we work with it? This is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Thanks, Jesus. How many of you are struggling with that first sentence? <laughs> right? Don't worry about your life. Ah, oh, wrong already. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? What a question. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. And then the most encouraging statement in all of the Bible, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't shoot the messenger, this is Jesus speaking, okay? So I believe that it's here that Jesus helps us understand what Paul understood, what Peter understood, what the writer of Hebrews understood, what Abraham understood, what many heroes of the faith understood. It's just a tent. Jesus helps us understand this by asking five questions and giving one truth. And that's what I wanna look at for the remainder of our time together. Y'all with me today? All right, need your help. Come on, every shot number one. Here's the first question that Jesus asks us, and we're gonna explore these questions. He asks this, isn't life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's gonna come back to this question in a little bit, so I need us to, to look at some of the phrasing and, and, the, and highlight the word that's used here because it helps us understand what this is really an assessment of. His question, if you're writing notes right now, this question is an assessment of purpose. He uses the term more than. Isn't life more 
than. See, it's really easy to be tricked into thinking that Jesus was bringing commentary on food and in clothing, but he's not. He's dealing with the motivation and purpose of our lives and our natural draw to pursue that which feeds us and clothes us, rather being fed by the bread of life, John chapter 6, verse 35, and being clothed in his righteousness, Isaiah 61, verse 10. And see, the truth is, is that much of the pursuit of our lives is not based around kingdom purpose, but rather tent management. And some of us have given up on the purpose of God for our life so that we can pursue tent management. So he says, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Let's rework the word. Isn't life more than your tent? I've given you a purpose. I've put a design in your life. There's a reason and a rhyme. Isn't your life more than the tent? So why do you keep running back to the tent? Why do you care? What is going on in the tent that's more important than what's going on in the kingdom? That's a motivation purpose. I really believe that every single person that has ventured in and out of this room today and people all across the world have a call and a purpose and a destiny on their life. And the reason that most of us miss it is because we're good with the tent. So Jesus says, isn't your life more than that, though? Second question, everybody shout number two. He doubles down. He says, okay, if that question isn't working for you, let's ask another one. Aren't you worth more than they? Talking about birds. This is an assessment of worth. I have found that one of the greatest reasons that we do not trust Jesus with the details of our lives, and so we take tent management into our own hands, is because we do not believe that we are of worth and value. And so because I do not believe that I have worth and value in God's eyes, I'm going to take anything that I possibly can, I'm gonna take it into my control, I'm gonna take it into my ability, and so I'm going to add value and worth to my life by managing my tent. I'm gonna put stuff on, I'm gonna engage in relationships, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use my body and my mind and my heart to do things that I know I shouldn't be using my body and my mind and my heart to do, also I can get a hit of worth and value. And so I run around, just give me one more hit of worth and value. Somebody please tell me I'm of worth something. Somebody please tell me that I'm valuable. Just one more hit, just one more hit, just one more relationship, just one more substance, just one more purchase, just one more vacation. Something, something tell me I'm worth it. The problem is, is that God already told us. He already said that you have value. He already said that you have worth. So Psalm 8, verses 1 to 9 says this, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You've covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Gosh, there's so much good stuff in here. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. And now verse five, the psalmist is going to pivot and he's gonna bring narrative to the creation. 
And he's gonna say, you made him, man, a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. This verse right here is establishing for us a base value of dignity and worth. Why? Because we are his creation. That's it. Nothing you did, nothing you achieved, nothing you put on, nothing you collected into your tent, nothing that you can do gives you worth and dignity. You are his creation. Oh, and don't we love the things that we make? Remember when your kid comes home with a little clay thing that he made? I'm like, look what I made. And you're like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, but he loves it. She loves it. And run around with it. Come on, remember when you did it? Remember pottery class? I'm going to make a bowl. Turn into a cup. <laughs> oh, but you loved it. Right? If somebody gave you eyes on that, that bowl that you made, you got all defensive. Don't be looking at my bowl like that. I made it. Right? Y'all remember Woodshop? You made a bird house. House. Leaned a little bit. A little rickety. I wouldn't actually allow a bird in it. But you made it. Remember Metal Shop? You made it. Remember painting? You made it. Remember poetry? You made it. Some of you have that stuff sitting in a cedar chest. Why? Because you made it. Some of you have it sitting on a wall because you made it. It's a value and it's of worth because you made it. And I came to tell somebody today the reason that you have dignity, the reason that you have value, the reason that you have worth is because God made it. Ephesians says you and I are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to walk in things that he has for us. Why? He made it. Lest some of you think that you are the product of a cosmic sneeze where the universe just went, ah, ah, and you popped out. No, 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 no. He made it. His fingers made it. The universe doesn't put this together, this beauty together. Cosmic explosions, random chaos, putting the beauty of this patchwork of people known as humanity. And then we wonder why the world is in rage and chaos right now. Is it possible that the world will never be able to do what it's supposed to be in alignment with its creator as we continue to devalue the very thing that God made? The truth is that we spend much of our lives devaluing and being devalued. We subscribe to ideas and ideologies that debase our personhood to the level of animals. We develop systems and procedures that dismantle dignity and the value of life. And according to James chapter three, verse nine, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. So, no wonder 
I get into my tent. Because if we're going to do that, then I need to take care of this. Is anybody with me in church today? Here's the next question that Jesus asked to drill down even further. He says this, number three, can any of you add a moment to his lifespan by worrying? Can any of you add a moment to our lifespan by worrying? But we do it all the time. This is, a, this is an assessment of time and attention. In other words, Jesus is asking, what are you paying attention to? What's got you so worried? See, worry, I've, I've come to discover, is not just an emotional disposition, but it's a physical activator. A lot of us think worry just resides in our mind and our heart until you look in the mirror and, you're, and you realize worry resides on my body. My eyes look more tired. The bags are getting bigger. I don't look the way that I used to. I don't engage the way that I used to. Why? Because I'm worried. I'm worried about it all. I'm worried where this is going to come from. And I'm worried how this is going to happen. And I'm worried about how they see me. And I'm worried about what's going to happen here. And I'm worried if the professor's going to give me a grade. And I'm worried if I'm going to face that addiction again. And I'm worried if they're going to leave me. And I'm worried if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, I'm worried. But it's not adding a day to our life. So let's go old school. For some of you, you're gonna freak out right now. Because this old school is gonna include the King James Version of the Bible. Let's go, somebody. Come home. Matthew chapter 6, verse 27 in the King James Version says this Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? The Greek that's employed here to create this sentence structure by taking thought means this, to be pulled in different directions based upon the inaccurate belief that one can change their circumstance or add to it by worrying. In other words, it could say this, which of you, by tearing their life apart, can add one cubit to his stature? Here's the problem. Many of us are missing the right things because we are focused and worrying about the wrong things. Come on. We are missing the right things because we are so focused, we are so enamored, and we are worrying and have anxiety over the wrong things that we miss the the right thing. Just wee, right past us. Come on, have you ever done it before? Have you ever stayed up more hours than you wanted to to the wee hours of the night? contemplating how that conversation was going to go with him or her at work because you didn't like the way they gave you eyes. You didn't like what was said. You didn't like the tone of their email. And so you know what you're going to say. They're going to go left. I'm going to go right. I'm going to come up. Boom. Uppercut. I win the argument. Yo. <laughs> so you're up all night. You're up all night. You're up all night. So you walk into work and your eyes are bloodshot and you've died, your friend, everything like that. And then you meet that person. You're like, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. And they're like, hey, I just want to let you know, I am so sorry. I know that email probably came off wrong and that was not my intention. I hope we can be all right. And you're like, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> Why? Because you didn't even get to have the argument that you were worried about. Come on, husbands. Come on, wives. (laughs) 
I live next to Joe. I love you, Joe, not you, Joe. It just came out right there. Me and Joe have some issues going on. I'm gonna see him at Safeway. We shot, or uh, not Safeway. Well, that was a kickback to Arizona. Um, I'm gonna see him at Smith's. I know what I'll say to Joe. I see him, I know what's gonna happen. I stay up all night worrying about the interaction I'm gonna have with him in the bread aisle. I have grandma sycamores underneath my arm. Shout out Utah. <laughs> if Joe, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just call him out for what he said to me at church the other day. It was absolutely ridiculous. You stay up all night, worry, 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 worry. Then Joe pops in the aisle and you run because you're not gonna have the confrontation. <laughs> you worried all night for the thing that you're not even gonna engage in. You worried about the promotion all day long. The whatabouts and the should-haves. What if they don't do this? What if they don't see me? Have they seen me? I've been working hard. Do they not get it? Up all night, you're exhausted. You were beat, your soul is weary because you worried about something you have no control over. Yeah. It doesn't add a moment to your life. Here's actually what I've come to learn. Worry will never add a moment to your life, but it will take away a lot of moments. It'll take away a lot of moments. I know I worry. It's hard. The world we live in makes us worry. But I'm trying to make sure that I don't just live in my tent. I'm trying to make sure that I don't just stay in my tent and gather all my worries and gather all my things. And this is where I'm gonna play. This is where I'm gonna stay. This is my tent. Number four, everybody shout number four. Fourth question. This is what Jesus asked. Why do you worry about your clothes? This is an assessment of weight. And this is not a redundancy in Jesus' line of questioning. It's an assessment of something that all of us struggle with, and that is the weight that material items have in our lives and the respective power they have over our ability to say, it's just a tent. So the question is, is, is the tent secondary to the kingdom in our lives? This is a material issue. This is a material question because for many of us, the kingdom is secondary to making sure that I can accessorize my tent. Now, I'm not saying clothes and stuff and things are bad. I'm just saying that if it's at the expense of the kingdom initiative that God would have you engage in, we've got to decide what things weigh in our lives. That my stuff and things don't weigh a certain amount where I can't just let it go if I need to let it go, if it means that I can step into all the kingdom stuff that God has for me. Some of us will never step onto the foreign mission field that God has for us because we're too worried about our tent. Some of us will never step into the adoption that we're supposed to step into because we're too worried about our tent. Some of us will never engage in giving of tithes and offerings and generosity and trusting God with this because I'm worried about my tent. Some of us will never step into doing the things that God, building the business and, and giving to that orphanage and doing the things that we're supposed to do. Why? Because I'm worried about accessorizing my tent. So we gotta decide what we're gonna do with the stuff and the things. If I can just be real, real with you, the stuff that I wear and the things that we drive and the house that we live in, to Eric and I, it's secondary. 
And we've proven it's secondary because every single time God says go, we go. The house doesn't matter, the cars don't matter, the shoes don't matter, the clothes don't matter, the money doesn't matter, why? Obedience matters, why? Because it's just a tent. I could spend my entire life filling my tent for it just to one day be burned up, gone. And some of us are running around trying to take this to heaven. I could just imagine, I don't know what heaven really looks like, but let's just go with pearly gates for a second. You strolling in with your tent. I got this stuff. Jesus, look what I did. It's just a tent. Fifth question. Won't he do much more for you, oh, you of little faith? Seth, will you help me move this back to where everyone can see? Won't he do much more for you, oh, you of little faith? This is an assessment of your faith, of my faith, or more specifically, our ability to see beyond our tent. So to help us with the question, we go to a moment in the life of Abraham, found in Genesis chapter 15, one through six. So we get ready to land this plane. The Bible says this, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? God, what can you give me that's greater than my greatest dream? (laughs) Says the created to the creator. What can you give me? Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So now I'm just going to complain a little bit. (laughs) So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Notice there's no pretense to how how God says something back to him. It just says it's so matter of fact. And then verse five is what's perplexing for me, but it helps us understand what I'm trying to drive at. It says he took him outside. Now remember, Abraham doesn't have a hearing problem. He left already. He's on a journey. We know that God and Abraham have a have a relationship in which they converse. Abraham had, to co- Abraham had to come outside. He wasn't in his house. He wasn't in a structure that had foundations. Where was Abraham? He was in his tent. So what I want you to see what it looks like. This is Abraham. This is you and I. God! What can you give me? I got everything I need in my tent. And the things that I don't have in my tent, I'm going to be mad at you about. So I'm going to pitch my fit from my tent. 
Oh, but bless me. Answer my prayers. Give me what I want. So God says to Abraham, come out of the tent. Now I'm going to just take some creative license because I picture it more like Abraham kind of doing this. Like, <laughs> if this is me, this is what I would do. What do you mean come out of the tent? Come out of the tent. Get out, get out of the tent. But you don't, you don't understand. Last time I came out the tent, I got hurt. Come out of the tent, Abraham. But last time I, I came out of the tent and I went to that church and I got hurt. But, but come out of the tent. Last time I came out of the tent, we miscarried. Come out of the tent, Abraham. Last time I came out of the tent, that business failed and we went bankrupt. I'm out of the tent, Abraham. But you said that we would always be married. Come out of the tent, Abraham. But they prayed at church and they said that cancer was defeated. out of the tent, Abraham. But you told us to start adopting and he got taken away. Come out of the tent, Abraham. Why, God? I want to show you something. What is it that you can show me that I haven't already seen? What is it that you can show me that I haven't already seen? So the Bible tells us that Abraham steps out of his tent. God says, I want you to look up. And I want you to see the stars. And then he says, I want you to count them if you can. And then he says to Abraham, that is my promise to you. And the reason that many of us have lost faith in God is because we've refused to step out of the tent and get a new perspective in order to receive his promise. What can you do for me? faith changes church as our perspective changes.
God's promise to Abraham was only seen when he saw things different. Some of us are hiding in our tent. God's saying, look up. Look up. And so it's on the backside of all that that Jesus gives the truth, one truth. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided to you. Because here's the truth. As we seek the kingdom, he'll take care of the tent. As I walk kingdom initiative, he'll take care of my tent. As I give my life over to kingdom truth, he'll take care of my tent. As long as my marriage searching for kingdom foundation, he'll take care of my tent. As long as I'm pointing my kiddos towards Jesus, he's going to take care of my tent. As long as we're keeping Jesus the center of this church, he's going to take care of the tent. As long as I'm giving him my resource, he's going to take care of the tent. As long as I'm giving him my mind and my heart and my body, he's going to take care of the tent. Why? Because it's kingdom first, tent second. We got to come out of the tent. We got to get our So Peter reminds us in closing this truth. And just a few verses earlier, stay standing. We're going to close. Peter writes, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. For the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Why? Come on, everybody say it with me. Just a 10. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. I'm asking everybody to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. Jesus. Here's the thing. Many of us are going to go today and we're going to fill in the blanks and we're to figure out where this message really applies and going to hopefully spread it across our lives and reorient some things. But for some of us right now in this moment is the most important decision that we're going to make when it comes to getting out of the tent, which is giving the tent to him. And it's saying, Jesus, this is not mine in the first place. It's yours. And so we're going to pray a really important prayer in this moment. Around here, we call it the prayer of salvation. There's nothing fancy in these words, but rather the heart from which these words come from. And if you're saying in this moment right now, Jesus, I need to give you my life. I need to give you my tent. I want to follow you. Can I encourage you to pray this prayer with us today? We're going to pray it all together so we don't leave anybody out today. But if you'd be saying, Jason, that's me. I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to give him my life. I want to follow him. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. I want him to rework my life. I want him to take over my tent. Make this your prayer today. Everybody repeat this after me. Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. 
I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me. Change me. Make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm giving you my tent. It's yours. I'm seeking first the kingdom. In Jesus' name.